Hello, listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Dr. Zanetta Rago-Craft, the inaugural director of the Monmouth University Intercultural Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Z. Thank you, Dr. Williams. It's so good to be here again. Yes, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show today and taking up a little time with me about this topic of Black and Asian solidarity. And it's a series of uh, interviews that I hope to have over the semester with different uh, faculty members. And um, I think it's it's an important topic that I've been thinking about a lot and just, you know, largely because of with the pandemic and the rise in anti-Asian violence. And, um, but just thinking of it as a historian, um, how there have been great examples of Black and Asian solidarity in history, and even down to the present contemporary society. So first we will discuss Dr. Z's uh, background and research interest including her expertise in DEI initiatives, as well as a professor. And um, our inaugural director of the Intercultural Center has done a fantastic job. So I want to give her a shout out for that, for building, helping students build community across the campus of Monmouth University. So take it away, Dr. Z. Tell us a little bit about your background, your um expertise and your journey into higher education? Sure. So um, I feel like I've, I've been on the show a few times, so you all are probably, um, our, our return listeners are probably a little tired of hearing my story, but I'll tell it again anyway for our new listeners. Um, I uh, am a first-generation college student. I come from Long Branch, New Jersey originally, and I attended Ramapo College of New Jersey for my undergrad um, and it was there that I um, struggled to, you know, find my own voice, find community, um, and was fortunately, very fortunately, um, enveloped in a whole network of support and and love and development. Um, and I, you know, discovered student affairs uh, as a field by working in their women's center and finding my feminist voice and, you know, growing into my own um, identity and sense of self, so much so that it encouraged me and inspired me to um, go into the field myself. So after Ramapo um, and working at the Women's Center and the EOF program there, I went to NYU and worked in the LGBT Center there uh, and did my master's and also worked in the Multicultural Education and Programs office there. Um, and then when I completed my master's, I spent my first uh, seven years of my professional full-time journey at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, uh, growing eventually to uh, direct one of four cultural centers uh, on the New Brunswick campus, specifically the Center for Social Justice Education and LGBT Communities. Um, And I did my doctoral work at Rutgers as well while I was working full time. And um, uh, my research is in campus climate and and more specifically, how do we address campus climate? So how do we assess it? But then how do we um, also respond to uh, what we assess? Um, and community building generally, making sure students and faculty and staff uh, feel a sense of belonging and are enveloped, if you will, in love and support so that they can, um, you know, meet whatever goals they have as well. Um, And so after finishing my doctoral work, I came to Monmouth University in 2019 to begin uh, the Intercultural Center here, which was a new center um, and started when I started uh, on campus. And it's been three years. So um, happy to be here. So what I always always like to ask people, what brought them to higher education when I have higher ed, you know, administrators or professors on the show? Because you could have easily done your work in a K through 12 environment which is, I think, the work that you do is so much needed at that level as well. 
but what particularly attracted you or did something in particular attract you to working in higher education? Yeah, I, you know, that's a great question. So at the time, um, when I went to undergrad, I didn't mention this, but I was actually on track to be a high school history teacher. So I was um, just student teaching away from uh, from getting that certification. And so I did actually envision my trajectory to be in a K through 12 setting and teaching history um, specifically. And I, you know, I made a switch uh, in my senior year and made the decision to, to go on to graduate school to do this work in a higher ed environment because, you know, I think there's something at the time, there wasn't as strong of a structure around diversity, equity and inclusion work in the K through 12 system. There are a lot more, um, you know, centralized positions and centralized work at the district level. There are school professionals um, but at the time, there there really wasn't. There was sort of a um, uh, a piece piecework or piecemeal um, network of you know s- teachers at the K through twelve space who would volunteer their time to advise a budding you know student organization here or there, right? Like GSAs have a long, really rich history um, in the K through twelve setting, particularly in high schools. But higher education, you know. It's different working with students who uh, who are, you know, over the age of 18, who are, um, particularly when I got into the field, I was working around gender and sexuality. Um, And so there was more permission, I guess, to do this type of work at the college and university level than there was at the K through 12 level. And I would say say that's still true. Um, depending on, well, I mean, we see it depending on what state you're in around making sure we're building spaces that affirm um, diverse genders and sexualities. So um, I, higher ed was kind of the, the only place where I saw doing the type of work I wanted to do as a real possibility that wouldn't be met with overt, depending on the institution uh, backlash. Yeah. I spent, you know, I'm thinking of what's happening in the country right now in, um, DeSantis over there in Florida with the Don't Say Gay initiative. And just, it makes me think about how K through 12 educators could really use a DEI person, especially now with what's happening across the country. And it's such a shame, you know, banning books and and language and speech. It's just um, unfortunate right now. And at the K through 12 level, you really are much more um, <clears throat> open to, you know, sort of direct backlash and criticism and, and organizing, frankly, um, from from parents and also just external um, uh, folks. And I think state by state, it's really important because the laws are really different. Um, I, I think we're fortunate enough to work in a state where the laws are very clear around discrimination and bias and our curriculum um, is also, well, at the K through 12 level, there's a lot of interpretation, but it is very clear about, um, there's a clear messaging around, you know, what can be included and what should be included. Um, and, you know, in other states, it's very clear about what should be excluded and what should not be spoken about. And um, at the K through 12 level, it's it's much more, uh, there's a lot more vulnerability, frankly. Um, so I really give a lot of kudos to our K through 12 uh, educators who are, you know, making their classrooms spaces of, you know, resistance, but also healing and love and affirmation where in places that are really tough to do that. No, yeah, definitely shout out to the K through 12 educators. I I remember when I was in, um, when I was in school, grade school, during the time of the dinosaurs, (laughs) um, the biggest controversy was, uh, was, sex education, you know, should, should we have sex, sex education? Do we leave it to the parents? That was the biggest controversy. And, uh, now it seems like definitely these school teachers could use support from DEI specialists. Uh, we'll see what happens in these States like Florida. Um, but so tell us a little bit more about your your own experience um, and, and anything that you feel comfortable in sharing about your own um, identity in terms of how you identify 
and how this experience, um, you know, shaped your life in the academy as a woman of color. Sure. So, I mean, the theme, the topic, right, of, of our, our episode today is around Black and Asian solidarity. Um, and I just so happen to, um, you know, have the lived experiences of being both Black and Asian um, and, and white. I'm multiracial. My mother um, was Italian American. Um, my father was um, Jamaican and Indian. Um, and you know, I've sort of navigated um, a, a multiracial experience and, and been racialized in many different ways, actually. Um, I think I uh, have had to navigate the world in somewhat an, an ambiguous way, frankly, in terms of the way people's perceptions shape um, their assumptions uh, around uh, expectations for who I am and, and what I have experienced. So, um, but I'm multiracial and I'm queer. I am a woman, cisgender woman. Um, I grew up working class. Um, and I, um, all of those things definitely shaped my experience both as a student, but then also now as a practitioner, um, I understand what it's like to be, you know, to hold, um, multiply marginalized identities and also, um, you know, multiple identities and lived experiences of privilege, right? And how those things interact with one another and, and navigate institutions, um, many different institutions. But, um, you know, it's, it's operating and navigating institutions often on the margin, right? Um, with my lived identities. And you know what? Just the fact that you just talked a little bit about your um, identity in terms of your, um, in terms of how you identify, uh, I presume that a lot of mamas people listening to this particular show did not know that, you know, that you claim a, a mixed race identity. Maybe, maybe some people on campus do. Um, you know, I would imagine, right? There's, there's probably quite a few people, but. Uh, not all, right, in terms of um, how you embrace your multiple selves in the sense of um, race, ethnicity, and so on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's the way race works, right? We we are raised in a very black and white world, right? We have often very monoracial, um, you know, perceptions of individuals. And frankly, I think most folks would read my racial identity as Latina um, and, and and probably not ask for clarification. Um, so, but I'm always happy to talk about uh, race and racial identity. I've had to do it my whole life as a multiracial per- person. I've never had the option not to talk about race. Um, because I come from a mixed family. Um, so it's it's something that I'm very comfortable with, but a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about race or engaging around it, and they often just sort of operate based on what they perceive. And most folks will presume or say, well, Sonata, Dr. D, you know, she's over here organizing with the Asians, but, you know, she really belongs in this camp, or why is she here, Right. Yeah, absolutely. And frankly, you know, the way marginalized identities work, we don't have the benefit or the luxury of not organizing with people who are in need of support, right? And so for me, whether I belong to a group or whether I'm perceived to belong to a group, I'm going to be there for when a group is facing discrimination or bias and in need of support. Um, and I will show up either as an accomplice or as a member of the, of the lived experience. Right. Um, and, um, I'm just there. It's important to show up right when there's a need. Yeah. And I, I was uh, in the first part of this series, I had the conversation with uh, Rika Dada about how the media tends to, um, sort of manipulate, the um, idea of solidarity between people, between marginalized groups. And I was talking to her about the LA riots and the conversation about the black and Korean community. And prior to, you know, LA riots and the shooting of Latasha Harlins and how that sparked tension between um, the black and Korean community in LA. And, um, 
But if you look at history, you see so many examples of um, Black and Asian solidarity, whether it be at the personal level, right, between, um, you know, individuals, friends, co-workers, or at, you know, the level of social movements, politics, and, and so on, um, that there are so many examples of instances when um, Black and Asian communities have gotten together and organized against the Klan, you know, against oppression and inequality. And so it's become, you know, a question that I'm very interested in now, even more so. So speaking of your lived experience and this phrase, excuse me, this phrase model minority and talk about it a little bit and, and, and have you ever felt the pressure to perform this particular role in the academy or beyond? Yeah, so I always like to say the model minority, right? We always have to combine it with its full title, which is the myth of the model minority. So there is this myth, right? Um, <clears throat> that Asian communities, broadly speaking, and when I say Asian communities, like I, I just need uh, our listeners, and I'm sure you all know, right, how inadequate, right, that that umbrella term is to represent dozens and dozens and dozens of countries and uh, eth- eth- ethnic communities within countries and caste and like just so many different, like there's, it's not a monolithic experience, right? Um, but that's what actually the model minority myth um, encourages. It tells us that um, the Asian community as an umbrella term, right, is um, uh, ex- has different expectations, right, placed upon it. And it shows up especially in higher education um, in the context of teacher expectation, right? So assuming that um, an Asian identifying student uh, would be uh, strong in STEM mathematics specifically, right? That is a racialized stereotype. And some folks would say, well, that's a good stereotype. And I would say that there is no such thing as a good stereotype. Because what about the Asian identifying student who struggles at math? Will they ever, um, you know, feel a sense of, uh, encouragement to reach out for help, right? Or will they feel a lot of shame as if the they're not meeting not only the, the expectations of their families, but the expectations of their educators, right? And so there's a lot of uh, damage that comes with the model, the myth of the model minority. And I first learned about the term that's sort of more colloquial, right? There is more sort of um, person to person, interpersonal. But I first actually learned about the term model minority in my master's program under um, Professor Robert Taranishi, um, who is an, an epic researcher and uh, published the book uh, Asians in the Ivory. And it's all about how our data systems and our assessments and even just our framing of things like student success and retention and um, uh, college uh, attrition uh, and college attendance are really, really, again, inadequate when it comes to the ways in which we classify and categorize students uh, broadly, right, around race, but when it comes to the ways in which we classify and categorize Asian students within quantitative research, it makes a whole lot of ethnic communities completely invisible, right? So the stereotypes around South Asian and East Asian um, which again are very broad categories. Um, students achieving, uh, you know, GPA and, and uh, college attendance rates at similar or above uh, white students completely negates the fact that we have Southeast Asian students and Pacific Islander students and Hmong students who are made invisible by our data practices, and we don't then see that oftentimes their retention rates are much more aligned to what we would um, put resources towards, right? Meaning when we look at the experiences of Black and Latinx and Afro-Latinx and Native and Indigenous communities in colleges, um, we 
make completely invisible the experiences of Southeast Asian, Pacific Islander, and Hmong students in research and practice. So um, I first learned about that term in in a higher ed class, actually. Um, but so I've never personally felt pressure um, to be a model minority because I'm not racialized necessarily in my day-to-day experience um, as an Asian person, but I have heard the term and I see how it impacts many students, especially first-gen uh, students. You know, now that you bring bring it up, uh, your own background, um, Jamaican, Indian, um, or Jamaican and, and Asian background, I've I don't know how much, and maybe you talk to us about how much research has been done around that myth of the model minority as it also applies to Black communities, such as Jamaicans in particular, Jamaicans and Nigerians, right? We we talk about that myth a great deal as it gets applied to Asian communities, but how much has it been discussed as applied to um, Jamaican students, Nigerian students, and the expectations that are attached, right? You come here, you must do well. You better do well if you have a, you know, um, if you are Jamaican or Nigerian, your parents will not allow you to come home with any bad grades, right? And um, I remember when I used to teach in Essex County Community College, and I had a Jamaican student who told me that her parents actually decided to send her younger sister home because they were just disenchanted with the educational system here. I believe her younger sister brought home homework that was multiple choice or something like that. And they were just, you know, very upset about the quality of education that she was receiving. So they sent her back home to go to school. So the expectations um, that get attached to this myth, and um, I'm not aware of how much research has actually been done on the myth and how it gets attached to other communities beyond the Asian community, Black communities, Black immigrant communities in particular. Yeah, I'm not aware of how much that term has been applied outside of Asian and Asian American experiences. And I think that's because kind of going back to what I was saying before, when we put, uh, you know, people, individuals, not just students in these large umbrella categories, and we, you know, analyze and and look for trends and look for ways to support, um, when we, when we place a whole lot of different groups in, in these larger, you know, umbrellas, we again, start to think with very monoracial and also very monolithic uh, frameworks. And so to your point, uh, you know, Caribbean folks, uh, or when we when we look at the experiences of of Black students on college campuses, um, in terms of success, whatever we're defining as success, GPA, retention, um, job placement, whatever those things are, um, that are are in particular areas of research, and there are many different ways to define success. When we cl- when we qualify or quantify all Black students within the umbrella of Black, we completely negate the fact that there are ethnic groups within, right, within that umbrella that are actually, you know, to your point, particularly Nigerian students and Afro-Caribbean students who are many... most often when we're talking about um, the the research, we're talking about students who are first gen to the country or whose parents emigrated or they emigrated themselves um, who have incredible, you know, achievement rates and whatever, whatever that is. And what's lost in um, our research often is those, those experiences because they're, um, you know, put together um, with um, uh, domestic African-American students. And to be fair though, Um, I think that we have to address the fact that like pairing different groups out, even in our research, then can also lead to horizontal oppression, right? Because when we then look at, um, you know, communities within 
within um, an umbrella category and we say, well, you're doing well, but they're not, we completely negate the fact that it's not about individuals, right? It's about the context and the systems and the structures in which they've been living and educated in um, and what kind of resources their schools have, like, right? So I want to say that it's not about individuals um, or even individual groups, but it's very much about the context, the social context in which they've navigated. Um, But yeah, I've never heard um, model minority applied outside of Asian and Asian American experiences, but certainly to your point, there's a lot of um, inadequacies in our current research methodology as well. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I think it's a great point about looking at black blackness as monolithic when you have, you know, so many different groups within under that rubric. And, um, you know, I know many Nigerian Americans who identify as Nigerian American, you know, they're first generation and that's how they identify. Uh, but like you said, when you're looking at data and it just says the category of black, you know, um, how do you identify? And then when we're looking at a page, we miss a lot, you know, in these larger um, communities that are so complex, you know, whether we're talking about Asian communities or black communities. But there's so many examples. So look look more closely at our, our, our topic at hand, black and Asian solidarity. and um, What examples can you think of in either your own life, um, personal, professional, of Black and Asian solidarity? We all obviously know all the famous historical examples of Martin Luther King drawing upon Asian philosophy. And I think that's another area that hasn't been studied enough, how Martin Luther King's beloved community idea really draws heavily on, on Hinduism and Buddhism. I think the first book that's begun to look at King and um, a Vietnamese Buddhist who he befriended and um, they both embraced this concept of the beloved community. I think the first book that I know of scholarly text just published last year. Uh, I think it's called Brothers in the, in the Beloved Community if I recall that title. You bring up an important question. I think the first example that I can remember from my own education is the example of Yuri Kochiyama and Malcolm X. Um, And the, yeah, and, and I think that's probably the most salient, right? So thinking about the you know, experiences of Japanese Americans um, who were in internment camps and um, the movement for peace and anti-war and um, reparations and um, the housing affordability, right? I mean, I've seen there was, and there was a real friendship, right? Between Yuri Kochiyama and Malcolm X um, that went beyond just organizing. There was true, you know, sort of camaraderie there. And I think that's probably... Um, the first example that I can I can remember learning about uh, in in a classroom setting, and I, I you're right. I think a lot of those those partnerships, um, those collaborations, those those shared sort of movements too, right? I mean, there was some interlocking movement work that happened um, beyond just you know individual friendships. Um, I, they're often rendered invisible, um, particularly when you're in a context that, you know, isn't focusing um, strongly on the history of movement. So like, you know, in, in the West Coast, right, there's a strong tradition, right, the birthplace really of the Asian American studies, right, movement. And so I don't, you know, there's certainly some mirrored work that happens has happened and is happening on the east coast california really like you know stands out uh in terms of you know states and systems of education and um individual scholars and organizations that are really like you know pushing for these these stories and these examples of solidarity and these philosophies and these ways of being and knowing um, to the forefront, right? And are are trying to 
make what is too often invisible um, visible. And, you know, it's just, it's important work. Um, and I don't see it happening as much across um, or outside of individual like organizations in individual areas and in terms of like being on mass, like at a statewide level in many other places, I would say Rutgers, which I was referencing before to get to the other half of your question, which was like where personally, you know, Rutgers, uh, New Brunswick specifically has uh, pushed, has an incredible um, Asian American studies um minor, I think at the time, it might be a full program now. Um, I haven't been at the university in a while, but incredible individuals that I can think of that I worked with um, closely, in addition to working with, um, you know, incredible colleagues in the Asian American, Asian and Asian American Cultural Center there as one of our partner cultural centers. And so, you know, I, I think Asian American studies as a um, uh, as an area of academic thought and praxis is something that really needs to be at the forefront of institutions across the country, not just in sort of specific bubbles. Yeah. And you mentioned how Asian American studies emerges out of California and you can see a similar trajectory with black studies, San Francisco state and the black Panthers at Merritt college and um, how these activists found solidarity, you know, as they built you know, these programs uh, out West and, and, and how these programs came across the country um, makes me think about uh, James Boggs and Grace Lee Boggs, you know, their lifelong commitment to radical struggle. And um, also as a married couple, you know, it, and I think a lot of scholarship is at least historical scholarship is starting to lean in that direction to look at black radicalism in a global context and attach it to, you know, this discussion of internationalism that these activists were organizing, they were befriending one another, organizing together and shaping and creating movements from Asian studies to black studies uh, and the civil rights movement. I mean, uh, you know, as you said, Yuri Kuchiyama was definitely um, a, a civil rights activist. I mean, in that in that whole tradition of civil rights activists alongside Malcolm X. And so we have so many individual and collective examples, I think, of um, Black and Asian solidarity. What about on the college campus? The students you work with, obviously our population is, 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 is a small population in terms of the size of our campus when you compare it to a campus like Rutgers. But do you see any of it on the level of the college campus and, and, and students? Yeah, I mean, I think there's many different um, college and campus context, even in our own region, right? There, I can think of multiple institutions with, um, like you think about Cornell and Yale and UConn and Rutgers with um, traditions of Asian American and Asian organizing and studies and scholarship um, and, and, you know, critical masses, if you will, uh, on campus as well, um, which are, um, you know, incredibly important outside of states in which we normally think of as being um, the center of Asian American organizing. And, you know, I think a college campus in, is this really, you know, unique um, way and community in which you, you learn about things that you care about, but you also learn about yourself, right? You learn about your own histories, um, histories that perhaps you didn't have access to um, in your K through 12 system or even in your own family. You um, learn about what it means to be in support of others. You you learn alongside people perhaps you have never um, interacted with in meaningful ways, right? And I think that that happens on any campus um, and ours included. And, you know, I think um, we often sort of center learning as just, you know, what we're reading about or what we're discussing in a classroom, but learning happens in every place, in every space on campus, including, um, you know, learning with uh, who your roommate, uh, like who, what their story is and sharing your own and um, having 
meals and meaningful conversation across lines of difference and um, learning about what moves people and what, what your peers are passionate about. Like, why, why are they here? What was their journey? And what do they hope to do um, with this piece of paper, right, in the world when they leave? Um, so, yeah, I think uh, college campuses uh, offer a really wonderful opportunity to find your voice and, and, and strengthen or, or discover your purpose and helps hopefully to give you the tools to, to move forward and move things you're passionate about forward in the world. So as um, the director of the Intercultural, Intercultural Center, um, what are maybe talk a little bit about your programs and what ways do you bring students together and specific programming? I know uh, Hispanic Heritage Month is coming up, but are there any specific programs, say in the dorms, that you know work to kind of bring the students together across all these different identity categories? And what ways can can that happen? You know, on a college campus. I think that um, there are many different opportunities. So I always say that, um, you know, our events and programs, particularly when we're thinking about bringing artists to campus, we often bring um, musicians and spoken word, um, lectures, um, you know, great thinkers, great academics, great activists, community-based organizers across, you know, outside of campus here so that they can share kind of what I was talking about in your last question, you know, what moves them, what they're working on, how students can get involved, how students can, you know, discover um, their own, you know, paths and journeys to art and activism and community building and community organizing. And I think, you know, there's probably a perception that, you know, intercultural uh, means that it's just for particular types of students and in, in, in terms of our space. Um, but the reality is our space is for everyone who's willing to learn, who everyone who wants to engage more meaningfully across lines of difference and our events and programs are, um, you know, really the same way. It's not, it, it is Latinx Heritage Month right now. I think, uh, it's from September 15th to October 15th nationally, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you um, are not, um, if you don't identify as a member of the Latinx community, that you can't show up, right, and learn um, and and hear from incredible, you know, artists and movement makers and change makers and um, scholars about what moves them. Um, and I, I would hope that uh, an intercultural space in and of itself would be one that would signify a space of exchange um, across lines of sometimes across lines that we sometimes uh, find comfort in um, so that we can, you know, engage and learn in, in through art, through potential discomfort that we've been um, socialized with it before we got to campus, right? Because we're often socialized to stay where we're comfortable, right? We live in a highly um, racially and economically segregated um, world, uh, including in our own state. And so sometimes for coming to college, for many students, it's the first time they really even have the opportunity to build meaningful friendships and communion um, with with individuals who don't have the same lived experiences as them. So, um, you know, we do lots of programs. We, we have, you know, everything from, you know, trivia nights so that you can learn in a little bit less, um, a little bit um, more competitive, but also kind of like less formal way to uh, incredible thought leaders and, and um, community organizers. It's just, it's a really, there are many different options. So I think I'll go back to what I said before, which is show up. You're invited. Um, no, no matter who you are, or what you um, have uh, lived through, you're invited to to come here and be yourself and uh, learn. Yeah, I like to what you said earlier about learning happens everywhere across the campus. You know, in the classroom, in the cafeteria, wherever we are across the campus, that students there's always opportunities for students to learn, but also um, administrators, professors, and everybody on the campus. I thought that was very well, well said. And the fact that these events are not just for one group or two groups, you know, it's important for all students to, to realize that 
you know, these events are open to everybody on the campus. We can all learn, you know, in the different spaces. I know we have limited time. I think we try to like cater some of our, you know, direct support structures, right. To those who experience the campus on the margins, but that's different than, you know, like our mentoring program is specific to students of color and LGBTQIA plus students, but that's different than a lecture, right. That's different than art. That's different than spoken, you know, those, so there is, there is a need for both, right. It doesn't have to be either, or it has to be both. And there are some catered specific services to help students succeed, um, to help them, you know, build a sense of belonging, but then our opportunities for learning are open to all. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important to kind of strike that balance. And, you know, when I, when I first started the center, the campus kind of had a, um, a tradition of uh, celebrating Latinx Hispanic Heritage Month and Black History Month. And sometimes it depended on sort of, you know, um, it was all done by sort of goodwill, right, and, and volunteer committees um, and without necessarily a whole lot of resources. And, you know, something that I thought was really important was to think and expand to, you know, uh, to one, resource those those initiatives properly. Um, but to also make sure we're inviting everyone in to help plan those experiences, right? So when we're doing Latinx Heritage Month or Black History Month, um, we invite the entire campus to be a part of the planning process, right? When we, we've we added LGBTQIA Pride uh, and History Month, we've added Asian um, APITA Heritage Month um, as well in the spring semester, we invite the entire campus to come in and plan um, because it's not just about experiencing those events. It's also about, you know, putting in the work to make sure they happen. And we want everyone to know that they can um, be a part of that regardless of their own um, social identities. Yeah, I think it's, it's so important um, to talk about how we all learn. I think the professor who walks in the classroom, you know, carries the knowledge, but that's, you know, we've learned from our, I learn from my students all the time. And uh, we can all learn from each other in these different spaces. So as we begin to wrap up, there's one hot button question to an extent on the topic of affirmative action and higher education, particularly, you know, high profile cases, you know, involving Asian students at places like Harvard and Berkeley and um, your thoughts, if you're, if you care to share us on not necessarily these cases, but just affirmative action um, in higher education. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Oh, I have so many thoughts, Dr. Williams, uh, on affirmative action. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will say, um, I think it is. it has become abundantly clear um, that many of the cases, the national cases that have sort of a profile right now around affirmative action that involve um, Asian and Asian American, either individual plaintiffs or organizations, um, are lifted up above the many voices of Asian and Asian Americans who understand the importance of affirmative action, who understand the tradition and the progress that has been made through affirmative action historically, even though we know as it has progressed, it has been stripped away many different times. And it's very clear that we, we kind of going back full circle to the very beginning of this episode, it's very clear that affirmative action, there is a lot, it's, a, it's seen as a wedge issue, right? So if we look at the organizations that are pushing and funding the lawsuits against affirmative action, they are not Asian American led right? Um, they might reach out and try to collaborate with Asian Americans or Asian American organizations, but they are very often led by folks um, who are who are white and more explicitly who have an agenda um, of, uh, of stripping away any progress made by the civil rights movement. Um, and so, you know, certainly like who are very closely linked with, um, you know, white supremacist organizing and white and the folks who perpetuate the myth of the great replacement theory, right? Like these things are all interconnected and these organizations are very smart at, um, uh, putting, uh, faces to issues 
that aren't their own and so that they can hide behind the work of white supremacy, which is what many of them are trying to do. Um, and so to stoke fear and distrust between um, communities of color. And I just think affirmative action is a very clear example and the lawsuits around them, uh, around it is a, are very clear examples of that type of divide and conquer mentality. And I think, you know, what we can do to resist it is recognize that, uh, recognize it for what it is, which is uh, uh, a wedge issue perpetuated by folks who really want to just see, you know, the structures and institutions of white supremacy succeed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's my thoughts on affirmative action for now. I have many thoughts on affirmative action and the lawsuits surrounding it. But I do think that often uh, times Asians and Asian Americans are um, put as as, you know, sort of central. Right. Or made central to this issue when, in fact, it's being, you know, the vehicle of uh, dismantling affirmative action is not being driven by Asian and Asian American organizations, particularly those who come from a radical tradition. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the, you know, this this whole I remember even, you know, with Berkeley, the idea where you can take the subject test and the Asian Americans in particular seem to be performing better on a subject test. And then there was demand by some white students that, you know, we get rid of it. It's, you know, we have to change this because it's leaving a lot of white students behind. Um, I remember that controversy a few years ago. Um, but these more recent in the last year or two, we know, you know, what's really happening here uh, behind the scenes. Well, and I just want to add, there was a... Re- a recent uh, publication by the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans um, and the Disinfo Defense League, DDL. Um, and it can be found at uh, AsianAMDisinfo.org about all of the ways in which um, misinformation is uh, being used, particularly in social media, um, to drive wedges between communities of color, um, specifically uh, by, you know, using Asian and Asian Americans as a wedge community um, to, to, to sow dissent um, and distrust. So um, it's a wonderful uh, and important and critical publication. And it talks all about, um, you know, the, the, ways in which um, the media really enforces uh, this machine and um, helps to make sure that solidarity becomes harder and harder to achieve um, between communities of color. So I definitely encourage listeners to, to, to read it and, and to think about um, the narratives that they hear in their own um, circles around Asian and Asian American politics and communities. You know what? We're going to share this information, if you don't mind. The information that you just mentioned, I want to share in the show notes so that anybody listening can just, you know, look at the show notes and click on the um, these different, um, you know, links and that you mentioned. I just shared it with you. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. This is very important, I think, for our listeners to be able to look up this information. I mean, that's, I think it's very important. But like you said, they're using social media to draw um, wedges between Black and Asian and other communities. I've noticed that with the pandemic and the rise in, you know, hate crimes against Asian communities, that the videos that go viral are oftentimes incidences where you have a have um, a black person committing you know an act of hate against an Asian person and then it gets it gets blown up in the media and on social media and it's circulating constantly to the point where you presume oh there's great conflict between Asians and and black Americans and look you know can they ever get along that sort of thing that then it starts to fuel. Uh, uh, social media becomes then uh, uh, weaponized in a way. Well, absolutely, and not only that, you see the the sort of response to. I mean, there certainly has been a rise in anti Asian violence, but that's not just being perpetuated by the by the black community, which it seems to be the only videos that go viral. 
right? So we have to look at this issue more critically because you also see, um, you know, sort of the calls for more policing as a response. Well, there are a lot of radical Asian and Asian American communities who understand the importance of transformative justice and community safety that are very much more aligned to, you know, uh, the reduction of policing uh, in communities that, you know, that are, you know, in lockstep with Black and Latinx organizing, right, and working people's organizing in over-policed communities. But you don't see those moments of solidarity or those organizations that are quite literally working together to to push forward a more transformative justice model you only see the call for more policing and and it's just it's very clear right um uh what happens over and over again but i think you owe it we have to we owe it to ourselves and our communities to look beyond uh what is most visible on social media and look to history and look to organizing and look to organizations um, that have a, a much, much more deeply rooted um, connection to one another. Yes. And even after the LA riots, uh, the black and Korean community, um, you know, made it a point to try and come together and to rebuild their community after the LA riots. So we, we don't, we know we leave once we, you know, don't see the direct conflict anymore. We walk away. But in fact, you know, these two communities have strived to work together in different ways. Um, but new media plays a role in exacerbating um, conflict. So that's a great point, I think. Uh, and that's why I think those those media sources that you did share that are useful sources of information um, is very critical. And I'll share that with the uh, audience in the show notes when we publish the uh, show. So as we conclude today, tell us a little bit about your upcoming programs, research. Uh, I know you have a big speaker coming to campus soon. And um, anything, final thoughts you want to share with us? Yeah, I'm, I'm unsure when this episode will be published, but I will say on October 25th. Um, so if you're hearing this before October 25th, um, the Monmouth University Social Justice Academy, which is housed within the School of Education um, and funded by the Grennan Foundation, uh, along with uh, the Intercultural Center, will be hosting Dr. Bernice King on campus in person. It is free and open um, to the public, and it's going to be a wonderful event. It will also be live streamed for those who can't make it in person. Um, I just uh, really encourage folks to come out to this program because when we think about what it means and how critical it is to build beloved communities, to your point earlier, I think um, it's going to be an incredible experience to hear it directly from um, uh, an incredible change maker like Dr. Bernice King. So please come on out to that and, um, you know, just stay in the loop. Uh, many of our programs are open beyond uh, the walls of campus and we invite the community um, to, to be a part of our beloved community as well. Well, Dr. Z, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture. 